The first section of Shir Sazinu summarizes the past kindnesses that Hashem gave to the Jewish people. And then, after a little bit of time praising Hashem, we then also criticize the people for their failures, for their not appreciating Hashem's chesed. And then we invite the Jewish people to re- survey and to re- remind themselves of history. Zachor Yemos Olam, Vador. The Shein Eliyah opens with these very famous pasuk, calling on us to remember the days of old, to understand previous generations. Ask the elders of your generation, ask people who lived in previous historical time periods to teach you the lessons of history. And then, in Sukkim, Yud through Yudbet, the Torah specifically refers to, it seems, some of the great history, the shared history that we had at this early part uh, of our nation. Hashem found us in the desert, and in the wastes of a howling wilderness, He surrounded us, He instructed us, He guarded us like the pupil of His eye, the way Rashi says, the black of His eye, like we would say the apple of His eye, you know, a term of affection, that like an eagle, uh, so to speak, hovering over his young in his nest, he spread his wings, he took them, he carried them in his pinions. So this is a reference to the early stages of Jewish history and all the Hakar Satov that we should have for the great closeness that we had with Hashem and all that he did for us. A number of Mepharshim are bothered if we're going to specifically remember the events and praise the events and ask us to recall the events of this early period of Jewish history in the desert. How come there's no reference specifically to Har Sinai? Why does that seem to be left out from this uh, poetic recalling and recollection of Jewish history? So in fact, Rashi is, maybe, is perhaps bothered by that at first, but Rashi's interpretation is to deny that, in fact, is the case. According to Rashi, when the Pasuk says, midbar, He found us in the desert, the Dagesh, the emphasis should be, Yimtz'ehu. He found us, he found us in the sense that we were faithful. Osam matzu lo He found us, a specific nation who was faithful to him in the desert, that they were willing to be makabal alehem toraso, umachuso, v'ulo. They accepted Hashem's Torah, his kingship, his yoke. Mashaloa su yishmal ve'sav. And the other nations like Yishmael and Esav didn't. And this is, Rashi says, a reference to the famous Medrash that Hashem had offered other nations the possibility also to under, accept the Torah. And they did not. Only the Jewish people did. And therefore, Yimtz'ehu, Baretz Midbar, is not just the fact that we were in the desert, but or specifically refers to what we deserve credit for, and that is that we accepted the Torah in the desert. Ramban actually does not like Rashi's interpretation, and he points out that immediately preceding this, uh, the tone of the Shira is much more of rebuke, of tochacha, of the Jewish people being criticized for their failure to appreciate Hashem's kindness uh, and all the chesed Hashem did for us. And therefore, to write afterwards in this context, all of a sudden give them a great compliment that they accepted the Torah as opposed to other nations for the Ramban, that seems to be out of place uh, in this section of the Shira. Uh, perhaps, perhaps a way of uh, still interpreting the Psukim as referring to Har Sinai, but at the same time, taking into account Ramban's sensitivity, perhaps that can be suggested in the interpretation of the Ralbag, who very beautifully and very brilliantly sees in the various phrases in these psukim allusions to both the Jewish people's positive response at Harsinai, but also to their subsequent failure, a more nuanced uh, approach which may not only take into account Rashi's 
desire to include Harsinai, but also the Rambans, uh, that there is some level of criticism here. So, for example, the Rabbag explains as follows. When it says, Yimsehu Eretz Midbar, he found the Jewish people in the desert land, this refers to the fact he thinks that the Jewish people found Hashem in the, in the desert, and that is that we experienced, uh, while we were in the Midbar, all the incredible nisim, incredible wondrous acts of Hashem. Apostle continues, Ubatohu Yalel Yisimon, that in the desolation, in a, howl, in a howling wilderness, that and that's an allusion to the fact, says Rabag, that the nation, despite all the chesed of Hashem, they turned against him with the various complaints that we read about in Sefer Bamidbar and all the protests and specifically the Chet HaDamaraglim. And yet, nevertheless, Yisov Avenhu, the Apostle continues, Hashem encompassed them. Hashem's plan, says the Rabag, to bring the nation directly into Eretz Yisrael had to be scrapped because of the Chet HaMaraglim, and therefore Yisov Avenu, they had to go in circles. They couldn't just go straight into Eretz Yisrael, but they had to wander in the desert for 40 years. But then, says the Torah, Yevon and Ehu, Hashem instructed them, that Hashem instructed them throughout this punishment period. However, the various seeds of hope uh, were still planted there, and they were constantly being taught and given hope that there could be a better time. And Hashem instructed the next generation in various ways of wisdom and preparing them for when they would eventually enter into Eretz Yisrael. So in the Rabag's telling, you do have a little bit of both the compliment and the reference to the chasadim of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the Jewish people in the desert. But at the same time, it is definitely a more realistic approach, which definitely encompassed and includes the various ups and downs of the Jewish people in this part of history. This is just a small sample of the various attempts and frankly the struggling that the Mepharshim have to go through. The Shirav Hazino is at the same time very beautiful, maybe one of the most beautiful sections in the Torah, but obviously one of the most hardest, most difficult to interpret because of its very poetic and homiletic and very difficult way to be interpreted. And therefore we see here just a small example between some of the great Rishonim, Rashi, Ramban, Rabag, trying to understand where the various pieces of Jewish history, critical pieces, fit in to the overall theme of the Shira, and what phrases particularly might be referring to which events in Jewish history. Hatsur Tamim Paolo, God who is referred to here as the mighty or strong rock. His deeds are perfect. All his ways are just. He is a faithful God. There is no injustice, but rather tzadik v'yasharhu. He is righteous and he is upright. This pasuk coming at the outset of Pasha Ha'azinu clearly is declaring as a matter, an article of faith, our belief in the righteousness of God's judgment, something that we don't always see, but as I said, we take as an article of faith. Rashi, in his comments on the various phrases in this pasuk, also elaborates on this idea that even though we can't always see the reward of the righteous, we believe that eventually God is faithful and He will repay the righteous for their good deeds, even if sometimes they have to wait to Olam Haba. Similarly, God will punish ultimately, whether we see it right away or not, the wicked for their um, evil ways and their injustice. And in fact, Tzadik Yasharhu, that is the basis, says Rashi, on this idea, which we're familiar with, known as Tzidu Kadin, of justifying God's judgment. So this is basically the theme which we really is already conveyed by the simple reading of the Pasuk, and Rashi kind of elaborates on that. In the Chumash Mesoras Harav, the Chumash, which is based on the commentary uh, of the writings of Salvechik, 
they suggest here from Rav Slavichik in other writings, but they bring it out here, two related ideas that in his deep philosophical way, Rav Slavichik connected back to this Pasuk, which are deeper philosophical ruminations and elaborations on this theme. The first is that Rav Slavichik began by quoting the Rambam in the Murnavuchim in the third section, where the Rambam explains what the basis is of assuming that a man will be treated fairly, in a sense. And that is the idea that we believe that, unlike for other species, human beings uniquely have a right and can expect to be treated based on hashkacha pratis. That is to say that Hashem will actually be involved with and care, not just for the greater species of mankind, but for individual human beings. And therefore, whether things are good or seem to be evil, just or seem to be unjust, that is definitely a legitimate matter for contemplation based on the premise, says the Rambam, that people will be allotted and given a certain level of hashkacha pratis. Salvechik, in explaining this, points out that it goes back to the creation story, that Adam is created as a unique and singular creature, unlike the other animals or plant life and vegetation, which are created liminehu or liminum, they're created as part of a species. Salvechik explains that the reason that animal or plant life was created as a species, and not individual animals, is because, really, ultimately, the individual animal or plant is expendable and replaceable. The species may be important to Hashem, but not the individual animal or plant. Mankind, however, is not just about mankind, but says Rav it's about every individual man or woman. Every individual is valued and is given a certain inalienable right. Uh, it's nice, says Rav and he does ruminate here even a little bit politically, it's nice that there have been documents throughout history, such as the Magna Carta or the Declaration of Independence, that describe these inalienable rights but these are not given to us by the Magna Carta, obviously, or the Declaration of Independence. Rather, he says, they are being affirmed by these important documents, but of course they come, based on our metaphysical understanding, they come as a gift from Hashem because of this idea that human beings were all created individually. And the philosophical persuasion known as statism, he quotes, where the total empowerment is given to the state, which comes at the cost of individual liberty, Things like fascism and communism ultimately result in Seder Salvechik. These are fundamentally at odds with the Jewish approach to the innate value of every human being. And Salvechik further elaborates that he's worried that the secularization of man's status in the modern world is unfortunately leading to further dehumanization and a lack of appreciation for the uniqueness of, and the sanctity of every human being. Furthermore, Salvechik uh, focuses on that second and the last, latter point in the Pasuk, which we mentioned already from Rashi, that of Tzidok Adin. The idea that when bad things seem to happen, we accept as a matter of faith that there must be more than meets the eye, and therefore we acknowledge, even in such difficult circumstances, the justness and righteousness of Hashem's decree. Tzur Tamim Palo, as we said. God is righteous, and we say this in other Pesukim as well. Salvechik quotes in this context the famous Mishnah, Masech Labracho, Sandaf, in which it says, just like we bless the good things, so too we also bless the things that seem bad to us. And we have to realize that even if a person is met with disaster or is confronting a kind of misfortune, we nevertheless have to accept it in the same manner that we accept a happy event. From a religious theological perspective, questioning is simply uh, not appropriate because we have to realize, and I think 
when we are more removed from this, we do realize it, but of course it's very difficult in the moment. But we have to realize that we simply have no ability and capacity to understand Hashem's judgment. The, the uh, Gemara and the Medrash uh, describe particularly the death of Hanina ben Trajon, who was executed in a particularly gruesome manner with his body wrapped in wet wool, so he would die slowly. Of course, this is part of the Saharuge Malchus, which we speak about not only on Tisha B'av, but also who we will be doing next week in Yom Kippur. And the Medrash describes that when this happened and the news of his execution arrived, everyone who was assembled, uh, in fact, quoted this Pasuk and exclaimed, even in such a difficult circumstance, one of the greatest tzaddikim being killed in such a gruesome death, the Medrash highlights the fact that they didn't say Eicha, but in fact accepted the decree of Hashem and acknowledged his edict as being just and good. By doing that, they were asserting that they didn't even have a right to ask. Now again, this is very difficult, obviously on an emotional level, when we're in the moment and we're suffering, but on a philosophical and theological level, Seder Salvechik, this is in fact part of the ABCs of Yiddishkeit, and this is exactly what is being communicated in this Pasuk. One final caveat, or Salvechik himself mentions, and it's included in this commentary, and we speak about it every year on Tishabov, and that is our Salvechik was famous for believing that Tishabov was the exception to this rule. Because of the Megillus Eicha written by Yirmi which is a questioning of Hashem, so Salvechik understood that to be a license, not only that we read Eicha, because it was done once in history, but that Tishabov and the Churban are unique, and that we can actually question Hashem. But in general, the theme and the ethics and the theology that emerge out of our Pasa, Katsur Tamim Palo, Tzadik V'yasharhu, is the default religious posture. Hazinu Hashamayim V'adabera Give your ear, the heavens, and I will speak. Sishma Ha'aretz Imrefi And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Moshe begins this famous speech in the form of a song, Shiraz Ha'azinu, by calling on the heavens and the earth to listen to his words. In the Medrash, in a number of places and with a number of different approaches, wonders why specifically it is heaven and earth that Moshe calls to participate in this particular speech, and specifically, why does he need both? Why either, and certainly why two references? Rashi, quoting from the Medrash in the Sifrei, offers one approach, which is theocentric in a sense. It's really focusing, I think, on HaKadosh Baruch Hu and his uh, relationship to us. And that is that this song really is a warning to Am Yisrael about what will happen to them if they don't listen to the Torah. And Moshe is calling on the heaven and earth to be Adim, to be witnesses to this. After all, says Moshe, maybe in some point in the future, if they don't keep their end of the bargain and Hashem wants to punish the Jewish people, they may deny ever being warned and being given the consequences of their actions. And says Moshe, I'm human, I'm not going to live forever, I'm going to die. Therefore he calls on the heaven and the earth who are everlasting. Edim Shehem Kayamim Laolam in Chazal's terminology. Witnesses that will live forever, the heavens and the earth, they can always be relied on to confirm this warning. And this way the Jewish people will never be able to deny that they were given fair and transparent warning of the consequences of their actions. Furthermore, it's also true, uh, it continues, that these two, the heaven and the earth, will be instruments of either the reward or the punishment. If we listen, then they'll be the instruments of reward as the delicious produce will grow from the ground and dew will come from the heaven. If we violate the Torah and the mitzvot, then this will be the punishment 
kind of like the halacha that says, Yad ha'idim when witnesses testify against someone that deserves a capital punishment and they're found guilty, the witnesses play the primary role initially in executing that person. So too, it's the heaven and the earth that will be part of the punishment. The heavens will close, they will not allow rain to fall, and as a result, the earth will not give forth life, the earth will be barren, and the people will be punished that way. So as I said, this is one approach to why heaven and earth, specifically, and why both. And as I say, it's really from the perspective of Hashem and eternity and the seriousness, eternal nature and solemnity of this warning and the consequences. In Dvarim Rabbah, Chazal also addressed this question and offer numerous opinions, one of which, in a very fascinating way, is not focusing on Hashem, but really focusing on the Jewish people. After all, says the Medrash, according to this particular opinion, the Jewish people were compared. We know the Jewish people were compared and have been compared to both of these two things, the heavens and Afarharetz. As the Pasuk tells us when it comes to Avraham, Avraham is told, look, see, count the stars. Your children will be like that. And when it comes to the, uh, the desert sands, the earth, uh, similarly the Jewish people are compared to that when Hashem speaks to Yaakov and says, It will be like the sands of the earth. And the implication seems to be, as the Gemara in Megillah tells us, that why are we compared to both of these entities, heaven and earth? Because if we are doing the right thing, if we are Osin Ritzon Hashem, then we're old and Ad Kochavim, then we'll be on high and rewarded with the greatest heights, like the stars. But if we don't listen to Hashem, then unfortunately we will be punished and sent down, as it were, like the sands um, of the beach, if you will, like the desert sands. So therefore, uh, according to this approach of Chazal, the reason that Moshe begins this speech and this final warning to the Jewish people by calling on heaven and earth is to remind them of the consequences of their actions, that they can either be as high as the heavens or as low as the sands. So this is another interpretation, but as I said, not focusing from so much on Hashem or Hashem's perspective, but Davka focusing on the Jewish people. There's a third approach in the Medrash, which I believe is truly fascinating, and this is a third uh, vantage point, and that is that, according to this opinion in the Medrash, the reference to heaven and earth is really focusing not on the Jewish people or Hashem, but focusing on Moshe. Amr of Shmuel Bar Nachman says the Medrash, this is comparable to a, um, a, a general or some kind of high-ranking officer um, who has had a long and decorated career, but now he is retiring. And as part of his career, says the Medrash, he was Shimesh B'Shtei Medinos. He served two different uh, countries, if you will. One, his homeland where he was, and one uh, more of a distant uh, state uh, as part of this, uh, I guess, empire. And when he was ready to retire, Asa Yomtov, he made a celebratory party, but he said to himself, if I only invite my home uh, friends then the ones from the more distant country that I worked with and served, they'll get angry. If I only invite the more distant ones, then the ones who live near me, my home friends, will be upset. Therefore, what did he do? He invited both of them. So too said Moshe. Kachamar Moshe. Moshe is about to die. He knows this. 
and he is, in a certain sense, uh, celebrating his life. This is a tribute uh, to his life, and he is not sure who he should invoke, who should he invite, so to speak, to this tribute. After all, he is min ha'aretz, like every other human being, he comes from the earth, he's a human being, and at the same time, he is also gadal b'shamayim. He somehow was raised in the heavens, as the Pasuk tells us at Har Sinai, im Hashem yom. He was able to live in the heavens like no human being ever did for 40 days. Therefore, Moshe is a unique and complex person, unique in all of history, someone who's of both heaven and earth. And therefore, as a tribute to him, both heaven and earth need to be called to participate in this crowning achievement and tribute to Moshe's life. Zachor Yemo Solam, remember the days of old. Binu Shnos Dorvador, understand the years of generation after generation. The Shem Mishmuel, the Sakachov Rebbe, the son and the successor of the famed Rav Avraham of Sakachov, the author of the landmark and transformative works Egletal and Avnei Nezer. So his son, Shem Shmuel, commenting on our Parsha and explaining this well-known Pasuk has a remarkable and incredibly original interpretation which is filled with incredible lessons for us and really builds on one incredible and even radical insight after another. The Shem Shmuel's departure, point of departure, is that he begins by assuming that on at least some deeper level, Binu Shnos Dorvador should not be translated simply as understand the years of generation, of each generation. Rather, basing himself on a comment of the Eben Ezra, he says that the word Shana comes milashon shinui, change, transformation. What does that mean? In what sense is the etymology, is the root of the word year, change, shana, milashon, shinui. So he explains that in life, in general, you can really only appreciate something by contrasting it with its opposite. It's the sharp contrast between opposites which really allow us to more accurately and subtly and insightfully understand something. So for example, he says, if there would be no darkness in the world, there would be no sense or appreciation of what make something light. And the opposite, of course, would be also true. If there was no such thing as light in the world, we wouldn't understand what would be bad or negative or even unique about darkness. It would just be it. It's only because we have light that we understand what darkness is, and only because of darkness do we understand and appreciate the benefits of light. So too, says the Shem Yishmuel, This is also true when it comes to the different generations. If all the generations were equally good, there'd be no way to distinguish one from another and no way even to truly appreciate any of them. It's only because some generations are better and more righteous and others are unfortunately less that we have insight and appreciation into each of them. Therefore, says the Shemishmuel, that's what the Pasuk means when it says, Binu Shnos Dorvador. We should understand the differences from generation to generation. It is important, he stresses, that we understand our generation by seeing in what ways it's different 
than the previous generations? In what ways is it a shinui from the shnos dor vador? He goes on to explain, based on this premise, that in fact, as the generations go on, we generally have an idea of irida sadoros, that uh, the closer people were to the giving of the Torah, the higher level they were on, that there's a general going in the wrong direction, I guess you could say, from generation to generation. And there's a famous Gemara, which is a little bit of a riddle. The Gemara Shabbos, Daf Kuf Yud Bey, says, if previous generations were like angels, then we're like people. But if the previous generations were like people, we're like donkeys. So what does that mean? Are we like people or are we like donkeys? So says the Shem Yishmuel, no, it's all perspective and Shnehem Emes. They're both true. To the extent that the previous generation was angelic, Kamalachim, really holy, so we don't measure up, we're like human beings. But if the previous generation wasn't so great, they were only like, like Bnei Adam, and we weren't even like them, then we are actually not even on that level. We are in fact like donkeys, Kechamorim. And therefore he says, when it comes to evaluating the differences and the changes from generation to generation, we need to understand the differences between them, so that we can then hopefully improve, detect the problem, and do our best to try to fix the problem. There's no benefit in just studying history, so to speak, or just looking at one generation to the next. We have to understand not just shnos dorvador, but the shinui mi dorvador. In what ways do we not measure up? In what ways are we different? In what ways are we deficient? And how can we improve? And he explains in one final insight, which I think really is quite profound. He says, we have to really examine carefully why exactly are there changes? Not enough to just diagnose the different result. We have to try to get to the deeper point to diagnose, diagnose what the causes are of this different result. We have to understand the cause, not just diagnose the symptom, but what's the cause. And then he says something so important. He says, don't just look for uh, excuse me, don't just look for something obvious or big. Rather, he says, we have to look after, we have to search for He says, you have to look for something more subtle. Don't just look for the obvious differences. Well, you know, a generation ago or two generations ago, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have this, they didn't have that. So therefore, that explains the differences. There may be a certain truth to that. But says the Shemi Shmuel, don't be lazy or seduced to just looking for the obvious things. Look for the Shinoi Kal, the subtle differences that in fact made a big impact. Yet after we can identify those, then Yitamsu Lesalek at the Shinoi Hazan. Then we have to try to change that. And therefore, that's why he says the Loshan of Binu. The emphasis on Binu, to truly understand Maven Dover, Mitoch Dover, to truly understand subtlety and nuance, and don't just be seduced into looking for the obvious or the easy discrepancy and differentiation, but rather look in the depths, look in the subtle, look the nooks and the crannies, what are the differences between the generations, and then hopefully we can try to improve our current generation. Each generation can only improve themselves, but we do so by looking back and seeing not only the Shnostor Vador, the Shinoi Medor Lador. Kishem Hashem Ekra Havu Godel Lelukenu. 
Moshe tells the Jewish people, when I call out in Hashem's name, you should give praise to him. And the Gemara in Masech Brachos seems to use this Pasuk as the source for the Birchas HaTorah, the daily Brachos which we recite each morning, where we say, We've been commanded to be involved with, to study Torah. Vaharevna, we ask Hashem to make Torah sweet and that we should be able to pass it down to our children and grandchildren. And finally, we acknowledge and appreciate Hashem having chosen us and giving us the Torah as opposed to other nations. The simple understanding of this Gemara certainly conveys the impression that these brachos are mid araisa, that this is in fact a bona fide source. Kishem HaShem is the source of Berchas Torah. Uh, this is the way the Ramban, the Sefer HaChinuch, and others, in fact, uh, paskin. And on the one hand, it is the straightforward reading of the Gemara. On the other hand, it is a little bit surprising because generally, Brachos are only Midra Banan. Uh, generally speaking, we assume that benching is v'yachalta v'savato v'erachta. There's a source in the Torah for that. Benching is from the Torah. It's midaraisa. But generally, other brachos are presumed to be dirabanan. And yet, this Gemara and the simple understanding of it, as endorsed by numerous Rishonim, seem to make the assumption that actually brachos Torah are unique. The bracha before the shofar, before the lula, before the sukkah, etc. Those are all rabbinic. Those are all dirabanan. But evidently, it seems like from the Pasuk in our Parsha, the Gemara and Brachos, that Berchas HaTorah are Mida Araisa. In fact, the Mishnah Brura, uh, commenting in Simon Mem Zion, uh, seems to assume that this is probably the predominant view, and points out that this would have enough Gemina if you were unsure, you had a doubt, whether you had said Berchas HaTorah or not, whereas unlike usual Brachos, where we say Suffolk Brachos Lohakel, you can be lenient in a case of doubt, here, says the Mishnah Baruch, if we go with this opinion, we would assume that it would be Suffolk Berchas HaTorah if you weren't sure, then you'd have to, in fact, make, make sure to either be yotze some other way or repeat or say those brachas again just to be 100% sure. As I say, this is the simple reading of the Gemara and a view of many Rishonim. What is notable is that the Rambam in his Sefer HaMitzvos never quotes the Birchas HaMitzvah as one of the mitzvos, despite the fact that the Gemara seems to imply that it is a mitzvah daraisa. And this is curious, after all, the Rambam is counting all 613 mitzvos midaraisa, and the Gemara seems to say that Berchas Torah is midaraisa. Why would the Rambam not quote it? And in fact, it is the Ramban who first, uh, not only, but first, harshly criticizes the Rambam's omission. And the Ramban assumes that the Rambam must uh, disagree or have somehow forgotten the Gemara or something. Uh, doesn't think it's, if he doesn't count it, he must think it's the Rabbanon. And how could the uh, Rambam say that? After all, the Gemara seems to be clear that it is a mitzvah daraisa. How are we to understand the Rambam's position? So, one approach in a number of achronim, including the Arach HaSholchan and others, is that, in fact, the Ramban misunderstood the Rambam. Even the, uh, even the Rambam holds that it is a mitzvah da'araisa. If that's the case, so why didn't he count it as a separate one of the 613 mitzvahs? So says the Arach HaSholchan, say other achronim, yes, it's da'araisa. Not every mitzvah da'araisa gets its own mitzvah. In fact, it is implied and included, it is a, under the general heading of the mitzvah of Torah study itself, the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, which of course the Rambam does quote. 
as an independent mitzvah daraisa. So says the Aruch just because something is not categorized as its independent mitzvah, it doesn't have one of the 613 mitzvah slots, if you will, by itself, that doesn't mean it's not daraisa. The Gemara just meant it's daraisa, the Ramam agrees it's daraisa. He just assumes it's under, included and under the heading of Talmud Torah. Alternatively, other achronim, such as the Shagas Aryeh, as well as the Sefer Megillas Esther, which is a commentary on the Rambam, Sefer Mitzvot, they actually assume, as it appears by his omission, that the Rambam holds its Durabonon. Yes, in fact, he does hold its Durabonon. Ah, what about the Gemara that we started off that seems to say that it is Daraisa? So they suggest perhaps the Rambam had a different text, a different version, a different girsa of the Gemara, but they still maintain that, in fact, uh, that the first impression is correct, they just defend it, that the Rambam can defend his position that it is Durabanan. So it's a machlokas. Did the Rambam really mean it's Durabanan? And that's a little bit hard in the Gemara, but maybe you can wiggle out of it. Or did the Rambam himself agree that it's really Daraisa and just not counted as an independent mitzvah? A third approach, a very fascinating approach, suggested in Samachronim, and this would be perhaps my personally preferred approach, is that really there's a fundamental disagreement going on about the nature of these brachos, and one of the impacts of that machlokas is whether it's da'araisa or not. If you take a look at the wording of the Ramban in his commentary to the Sefer Mitzvos, where he articulates his position that these brachos are da'araisa, the Ramban writes that the reason that we are saying these brachos and the purpose of the mitzvah is to give shevach v'hodah, to give praise and to thank Hashem, Betito Taraso Elenu, for he giving us the Torah, we're thanking Hashem for the Torah, because Shebezed and Achel because by Hashem giving us the Torah, he's told us what he expects of us, he told us what's right, he told us what's wrong, and now it's up to us, if we follow it, hopefully we can earn Olam Haba. But could you imagine if Hashem had put us in this world and never given us a Torah? We would never know what he wants, we would never know what he doesn't want, and we wouldn't know how to do the right thing, we'd have no hope of being successful. So therefore we owe Hashem great thanks, we have tremendous hakar satov gratitude, that's why we say Berchaz Torah. And the Ramban is pretty clear, and this is also conveyed in the Gemara, that this is really a very similar phenomenon to benching. Benching, we thank Hashem for the food. Berchus Torah, we thank Hashem for Torah. It's possible, therefore, that that's why the Ramban thinks it's Daraisa. Benching's Daraisa. Berchus Torah is Daraisa. They're the same kind of bracha. It's a Berchus Shevach Vahodah. However, the Rambam perhaps assumes that this is a, this is a bracha on the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. It's a Berchus mitzvah, No different than, as we mentioned before, the bracha before shofar, before lulav, sukkah, etc. And all of those brachas are only the Rabbanan. In other words, perhaps the reason the Ramban understands it's daraisa is because he thinks it's like benching, it's a thank you bracha. But according to the Rambam, it's a regular, traditional old bracha and therefore, like all bracha it's only the